0: Well, this morning, in our adult study, uh, Ellis kind of set the table for the season that we're coming to. Uh, We talked about the Lord's Supper. uh, Had a fairly lively discussion about the Lord's Supper, uh, which is good, and we're going to continue that next week. Uh, But what I want to do, I want to pick up right after the Lord's Supper. Uh, My passages of Scripture today are going to be in Mark 14. And I'm going to start talking essentially... When Christ packs up and takes off and goes off to the gets out of me. But I want to do this in a little different way today. I'm going to make you do some of the work. Oh I see, see eyebrows ri- rising. <laughs> what I want you to do is to use your imagination, because today I want all of us to be Peter's shadow. as we go from that time when they left the upper room and went out into the garden through the time Christ was arrested and up until Peter denies Christ for the third time. So we're gonna be right there with him. So we're gonna look at Peter, we're gonna use Peter's life as kind of a mirror and we're gonna look at some of the things that happened to him and we're gonna use that to reflect on things that maybe happened to us. Uh, Things that are relevant to us 2,000 years later and see what Peter was like and what he went through and see how we fit into that analogy, if you will. So to start all of this, how many of you guys like to fish? How many of you ladies like to fish? Anybody out there like to fish? No, well, there's, there's one or two people out there. So when you think about uh, a fisherman, a person who does fishing commercially, uh, like maybe the shrimpers out of uh, Biloxi or something like that, what comes to your mind as a personal characteristic now these guys may be a little bit coarse, maybe. They don't dress too well. Maybe they wear white boots. It depends on what part of Louisiana you're from, if you wear white boots or not. Um, maybe they tend to be a bit vulgar, okay? Uh, but you know, generally they are manly men. I mean they're out there working for a living in the sun, the hot sun, they're catching fish, they're spending time doing all of that. Well that begins to tell you a little bit about where Peter was when Jesus met him. And when you read through the verses, uh, it talks about the fishermen there in Galilee actually being able to throw nets that are 20 foot in diameter, that have weights around the edges. That's actually the way they fished. They took these nets, they cast these nets, and they used them to trap the fish. So think about that. A 20 foot diameter net that's got weights around the edges and one person casting it out so that it'll go out in a circle and fall and catch fish. That takes some muscles. It takes some, that takes some upper body strength, if you will, okay? So what we're beginning to put together a picture is that the fishermen there in Galilee are probably not a whole lot different than the fishermen we see today. They're probably boisterous. Uh, they're probably uh, full of vigor, uh, a little bit rough around the edges, or maybe a lot rough around the edges. Uh, and if you don't believe all of that, you know, Peter hung out with a couple of guys that were known as the son of thunder, uh, I suspect their name, Sons of Thunder, uh, had a relation to what they were actually lacking in real life. So this was kind of the, the characteristics of the people that Peter hung out with, and Peter, that was his livelihood at the time that Jesus met him. But consider something else. At that time, in the Sea of Galilee, fishing was the major, uh, major economic event that they had. That's what they did for a living. That was the main thing of all the Sea of Galilee. There was something like 16 different ports around the Sea of Galilee. And there were other towns around the Sea of Galilee. And when you translate the names of some of these towns, it was fish tower or dried fish. So fish were very important to the economy of the area. And as a matter of fact, fish from Galilee were exported as far as to Alexandria in Egypt and as far to the north as Antioch in Syria. So these guys were actually competing with the fisheries of the Mediterranean to feed that general area around in the Roman Empire. And one of the things that I didn't realize until I was doing some reading on this, that fish was the staple food of that part of the Roman Empire. It wasn't chickens or pork or beef, it was fish. And these guys were competing on an international scale. Uh, Suggests maybe that they may have known Greek, or at least enough Greek to get by with, because that was the language of commerce and business at the time. So we see a picture of people that are not, men that are not particularly illiterate, maybe rough around the edges, but solidly in what we would call today the working class. So identify Peter as a working class person. Now, is this a person that you would expect somebody to call and say, you're gonna change the world? Not really you, know, you would, if somebody tells you you're going to call somebody to change the world you'll think of somebody that has some, maybe some knowledge maybe he's gone to rabbi school and has a lot of Torah learning and all of this but that wasn't Peter and that wasn't Andrew and that wasn't James and that wasn't John and these were the, first of the four apostles disciples that Christ called at the time so that's who Peter was and Peter looked at him and said follow me and Peter said okay which is kind of interesting because if somebody comes up to you that you've never met before and maybe you heard of something about him on TV and they said, follow me, would you say, okay, fine, I'll leave whatever I'm doing, my carpentry business, my, uh, whatever my business is, and let's go. Yeah, That's, that's, that's hard for us to, to think that he had that type of personality, that he, he, he found something that he was attracted to. He got up and said, okay, let's go, let's do it. Now, it's very probable that he had some association with John the Baptist. He might even have been a follower of John the Baptist. So he wasn't totally cut off from the fact that Jesus was the Messiah and he was there to change the world. But it was a different concept for him. So when Christ said, Come, he packed up and went. Tells you a little bit something about Peter. Now, what I want to do is I want to go to Mark 14. And I want to look at some specific verse, verses here in Mark 14. I'm, I'm not going to go through all of it. Like I said, I'm going to pick up after the Lord's Supper and pick up in verses 26 and look at verses throughout the rest of that chapter. You know, it's interesting when you study the literature of the Bible, uh, this part of the Bible in Mark is known as what's called a sandwich. And When I first read that term, I said, that's, that's kind of interesting. I'm thinking of peanut butter and jelly or or maybe an Oreo cookie, and actually those analogies are pretty sound if you think about it because the way Mark puts parts of his gospel together, there's a outside edge, there's a top edge, there's a bottom edge, and there's a middle, and usually the top edge and the bottom edge talk about the same thing, but the middle part is the key to understanding the whole sandwich. So we're actually picking up in the middle part at the end of one of these sandwiches. For those of you who are in Bible trivia, I just, I'll give that for your knowledge. So. Verses 26 through 31. Let's read that section. And I'm going to read it in the New International Version. It says, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Zechariah thirteen seven. if you'd like to refer to that. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter declared, Even if they all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all of the others, that would be the 12, said, me too. They said, me too. I will do the same. Imagine if you're one of the other 12. And here Peter standing up and Peter's saying, hey, even all these other guys could do this, but I'm not going to follow him. Which means in his mind, he could, he could visualize the other 11 saying, no, I'm not going to follow Christ, I'm out here, I'm done. But he wasn't going to do that. How would that make these other guys feel? You know, we think about it, we were talking this morning about examining ourselves and seeing what we, if we have something against our brother, before we come to the Lord's Supper. You know, that's the types of things that we were discussing. You know, somebody stands up and says, hey, all of these people could do this, but I'll never do that. I'm a whole lot better than that. When Jesus says you will all fall away, it means really something to the effect, if you look at the original Greek, to fall or to stumble. And the sense of the Greek word suggests that the disciples will willfully defect. They wouldn't willfully defect. In other words, they would come back and they would say, in their mind, they're not going to say, I'm going to leave, or they look ahead and say, I'm going to leave. But circumstances arise that all of a sudden now they're distracted, and they leave, and they move apart in stress. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. when we think about that, when he puts that concept together, do you remember what he told them to do at the end of Mark 13? That's the Olivet Discourse. And right at the end, he told them to be watchful and be vigilant. And they couldn't do that. And they couldn't do that. And the net result was they will fall away. Like Ellis was speaking this morning, there are effects for not doing what you need to do. Things happen to you. And in this case, they weren't watchful, they weren't vigilant, and they fell away. You know, Jesus is sitting here and he's looking at the disciples and he's telling them that you need to guard against the sinful, it's what all of us are guilty of. And you say, well, what's that? What are all of us guilty of? Well, I would propose to you that we're guilty of sin, of weakness, of weakness. And we don't resolve to do right. In other words, when something comes along, we're sitting in Bible study and we're all gung-ho and this is what we know and this is what we discuss and this is the way we are. But when the rubber hits the road, when we're out in the street and something pops up, it's like, oh, I can't do that. Or I'm embarrassed to do that. Or you're distracted. Maybe you don't even see the opportunity that it comes up. In other words, we don't plan to sin. Not a person here plans to go out and break a law or a commandment. But sometimes we don't plan not to sin. And when we don't plan not to sin is where we find ourselves going astray. It's written. You know, that phrase, it is written, it's a pretty common phrase in both Hellenistic literature of the time as well as in the Old Testament. And in the Hellenistic world, it's often used to introduce legal declarations or laws. In other words, proclamations with a legal force, authoritative proclamations. In the Old Testament, it often designates the authority of either God, the Torah, a king, or a prophet. So when he says it is written... That's an authoritative statement saying this is going to happen. Zechariah in this case is a prophet and the entire verse 7 says awake sword against my shepherd against the man who is close to me declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and I I will turn my hand against the little ones. This was God's will that this happens, and sometimes that's real hard for us to wrap our minds around, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but it's God's will that Jesus died, and we know and we've discussed the reasons why that happens, but when we look at later on in Jesus in the garden, he knows that that's God's will, but it doesn't make it any easier for him, you think about that. We can look at this quote, among others, as a warning to the disciples. They knew the Old Testament. They had been with Christ for three and a half years. They should have been able to understand this, that when he was going to be taken, they would be scattered. They didn't put it together. Like a lot of things, they didn't put together until later. But there's one other thing that we can tie this to. You know, because Jesus has compassion on sheep that have no shepherd. You think not? Read Matthew 9, verse 36. Because in nine thirty-six he was looking at the crowds. And understand the crowds, as described in the Gospels, were almost always an impediment. They were always either surrounding him, keeping him from people that he needs to talk about, causing dissension, but he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's what Matthew says, that Jesus looked at the crowds. Even if all the disciples fall away, I will not. Does that sound a bit arrogant to you? It's like me saying, even if all of you guys fall away, I'll stand firm. <laughs> Go ahead, tell me what you think about that. Eddie. He's laughing at me. <laughs> That's about right. You can imagine that that's their, their reaction to that also. That's the other's reaction to it, the other 11, that is. If you look everywhere in the book of Mark, and it holds true for most of the Gospels, when Jesus predicts his passion, the disciples respond with self-assertion and conceit. You know, God says, I'm going to die. No, you're not. We won't let you. You're the Christ. You can't die. You're the Messiah. I'm going to die. No, no, no. They do that all the time, and you can read it. See Mark 8, 31, Mark 9, 31, Mark 10, 33. They never have humility. They're always putting themselves forward and making themselves better than Jesus because Jesus doesn't know what he's all about. We need to tell him what to do. And Peter falls into this category, this pattern, and he continues this pattern. And he fills it to a T. You know, Peter doesn't, it doesn't appear that Peter is surprised that Jesus said that the other 11 would fall away. But he was surprised that he said, Peter, myself, will fall away. He was surprised at that. You know, Peter doesn't, def, he doesn't defend the cause of the disciples. He's, he says, they can go wherever they want to. But he did defend his cause. He said, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm better than that. I'm not going to happen that way. Peter's the exception to the rule. At least he thinks he is. Where others are fall, he'll stand. And Jesus interrupts this mock heroics with a strong dose of reality. He tells him that three times you're going to deny me tonight. Think about that for a moment. You know, I talked about momentary weaknesses and slips of the tongue and mistakes, if you will. That happens once. What about the second time? Is that still a slip-up? Is that still a mistake? By the time you get to the third time, I don't think anybody will sit here and say that that's a momentary slip of weakness. Three times hammers home into Peter and to any of us who read this that our convictions can be changed overnight if we're not in proximity with Christ. It just takes that little bit. Peter's not alone in this boast. All of the others joined in. They profess their allegiance to Jesus which is something easily said in comfortable surroundings but not so easily done in times of stress. It's easy for us to sit here in church in the air-conditioned afternoon in Houston and say, Jesus is Lord. I'll follow him wherever he goes. My life is his life. But what if he takes you to Nigeria in the middle of an Ebola outbreak and you're a doctor and you're there, you're doing his work, and you come down with Ebola? where does that take you where does that leave you in placing the last supper between the betrayal of judas and the defection of the disciples mark clearly shows that many the many who die who jesus dies for includes the closest companions that sat with him at the table so just because they were insiders they were close did not mean that they were excluded from the price that Jesus paid for all of our sins. The sin that necessitates the sending of God's sons to this earth is not the sins of those out there. It's the sins of those in here, as well as the sins of those out there. It's all of our sins. There's no exclusiveness there. It covers all of us, thankfully. Now we go to Gethsemane, and I'm just going to paraphrase this for time-wise. When we come to Jesus' prayer, and this is, I alluded to this earlier, Jesus knew this was the will of God. He knew that he had to die to cover the sins of all of humanity and redeem them with his grace. But did that make it easy for him? No, I would submit that it did not. Because when you read in there, it says that he was in agony. That, is, that his, his sweat was like great drops of blood that fell. And he even asked God if there was another way to do this. Now, think about that for a minute. Jesus, as God, knew what was going on, he knew that he was going to take the burden of, man, of humanity's sins on himself. But what did that really mean to Jesus? Think about it for a second. Jesus and God had been like this since eternity. Jesus then took on his humanness and came to the earth for 30 years, and Jesus and God were like this. Why do we know that? Because we know that he prayed to God. He constantly sought his will. And now all of a sudden he realizes that when he takes humanity's sin, he's going to be cut off. He is literally going to be cut off from God. Why do you think he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That I think he knew that, but when it happened, he felt it. And that was not something that was easy, even for a human that was God. do and we see that when we read his prayer and see his agony meanwhile what was Peter doing remember what Peter was doing sleeping yeah sleeping hey it's been a long night you know they had a big meal Uh, maybe they had a little wine could have had a little grape juice it's late night they're tired so Jesus says he picks out Peter and James and John says, come with me. And he goes and prays. And he comes back and they're asleep. He says, what is this? Yeah, what's, and again, what does he tell them? He says, watch. That's what he told them at the end of the Olivet Discourse. He said, watch, pay attention. You need to know what's going on. And they're sleeping. As a matter of fact, three times they were sleeping. Three times, several things happened in this Story. But they were sleeping three different times. He came back and they were snoring away. Finally, in verse 38, he says, Watch and pray so you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I would submit to you that it's exactly where we sit today. That our spirit may be willing. Our spirit may be very willing, but the flesh is weak. You ever get a call at two o'clock in the morning and somebody says, I got a problem I need to talk to you about? It's like, call me back in the morning. (laughs) Really? i got to go to work at 6 o'clock in the morning. Do you want to talk? Why don't you call me tomorrow afternoon? Okay? Yeah, these may be trivial examples, but my point is that that's kind of what we're talking about. Because God doesn't call us necessarily to an easy life. He wants us to be out there in the trenches. He wants us to be active. He wants us to be moving he doesn't want us to be sitting there and saying okay i know everything needs to be no teach me lord he wants us to be involved and sometimes being involved wears us out people wears us out people are messy you know for years i used to say give me a computer give me my rocks i don't want to deal with people you laugh i'm serious (laughs) that was me i'll take a rock doesn't talk back I'll take a computer. I can get mad at it and throw it up against the wall. Nobody cares. But people are different. I can't throw people up against the wall when they irritate me. (laughs) I can't even do that to my dog. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is, that's where we're supposed to be at. Because Christianity is a relational religion. We have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we have to have a relationship with our brothers. And relationships are messy. And that's why we have those recipes that we talked about this morning, that when you have a problem with your brother, there's a way to go work it out. And also the fact is that every year when we do the Lord's Supper, that we're supposed to make sure before we bring our offering to the table that we come back and say, okay, do we have that? We examine ourselves, we look at ourselves and say no or yes or what do we do and move forward. It's interesting for us to sit here and realize that trusting and obeying God is not the default response of his disciples. What do I mean by that? I mean by that if all of us are disciples of Jesus and something stressful happens to us, is our first response to go to Jesus or is our first response to what can I do to fix this? That's our default response. That's the first thing that comes into our mind when something happens. Is it Jesus or is it us? And we've got to understand that that's, that wasn't their first response, at least at that time. And we have to understand that we're going to be engaged in ongoing struggles with temptation and weakness. We don't conquer one weakness and that's it. We're done. We're in. We're good. It's an ongoing process. And that's why we have to continually be connected to Jesus in his spirit. When you think about it, when you look at Mark and when you look at the other gospels, that proximity to Jesus is when you have your most success. What does that mean for us? That means that proximity to Jesus is when we have our most success. That's when he'll use you to do his work. It may not be comfortable. It may not be easy. But when you're close to him, that's when it'll happen. When you're over here and he's over there, it's like electricity. You know, if you, if you consider the idea of an ark, you know, you've got to get the two poles together before there's an ark. If it's too far apart, it doesn't happen. That's the same thing here. If you want that ark, if you look at that ark as the Holy Spirit, you've got to be close enough for that ark to occur. It's proximity in Christ. Then Jesus is arrested. And that's an interesting story in itself. You know, here comes the chief priests, comes the elders, and comes the teachers of the law, which is basically the the three components of the Sanhedrin. But I think it's Matthew that also says they also have some Roman soldiers and uh, a leader of the Roman soldiers, a tribune possibly. So here's all these guys coming to get Jesus. And, and, and there's no wonder his response. And I look at it kind of satirically. You know, he looks up at him and he says, "An army to get me?" He goes, "Guys, I said temple teaching." And and the illusion there, especially with the fact that they were bringing the Roman army, is that Jesus said, "What am I? What do you think I am? A robber?" That what a lot of us don't understand. And I didn't even know this until I read something about we were this time. That during that period of time, there were a lot of Robber bands, I guess is the best way to describe them. There were groups of men that ran around under a single leader. Oftentimes they called themselves messiahs, but instead of fighting the Romans, they were robbing and pillaging from people that were going about doing their own business. And there were numerous of these around in that period of time, 30 AD, you know, 50 AD, in that period of time. So you can, see that, you can see that Jesus was saying, what do you think I am? Just like one of these normal bands of robbers. And uh, clearly they did, at least maybe the Romans, uh, but the Jews had their own agenda. And uh, so they went ahead and had him arrested. He was betrayed with a kiss. How many other times in the Bible do you find a kiss? The answer is not many. That rarely, if ever, do we see a kiss in the sense of greeting somebody with a kiss in the manner that we see Judas and Jesus. So it's somewhat of a unique occurrence in the Bible. But one of the things that comes out of the Greek when you look at this is that it was an exuberant kiss. It was a warm kiss. Jesus was there, and Judas came up to him like a friend and embraced him and kissed him and said, This is Jesus which is totally ironic considering he got paid 30 pieces of silver to turn this man over to the Romans and the Jews. But that's what the Bible says. That's what the Word says. And then Jesus was taken to the priest's house. And at this time, you have the arrest, you have the group of people there in the valley, and what happens to the disciples? They scatter. Like a bunch of chickens that were in a little hen house and you take the, you know, you all of a sudden lift the lid off and bam, they're gone. All over the place. Except Peter. To Peter's credit, he didn't just run off, but he decided to follow the crowd, see what was going on. So he follows the crowd and he shows up at the priest's house. And when we look at this, we see some things that pops out to us. That... We find out as we get to this part in Mark 14 that all of these men drank from the cup at the Last Supper. Okay? All of them pledged to die with him, and they all deserted at the end. That all in Greek is very emphatic, that every one of them, that means that they didn't even have a second thought. This happens. Their Messiah is gone. Their hopes vanish. They disappear. It's gone. Which brings us to Mark 16, verse 66. Sorry, Mark 14, verse 66. And we all pretty much know this story. We're in the high priest's courtyard. And Peter's skulking around. That's my turn. He's skulking around in the courtyard, trying not to be seen. Uh, Although it's cool enough at this time of year, they've got some fires going to stay warm. And it generates some light. And we see this. We see when she, says, when Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And then he went away out into the entryway. And some manuscripts say that at this time, the rooster crowed. So let's picture this for a minute. Peter's there. You know, he's just seen the, the trauma, just experienced the, tre- the stress of the arrest. He wants to know kind of what's going on. He's sitting there in the courtyard trying to be unobtrusive so people don't see him, don't pay any attention to him. And a girl walks by and says, hey, you're with that guy, weren't you? He goes, no, not me. He says, I don't know or understand what you're talking about. Well, that's interesting because when we look at that, when we read it in English, it's like, okay, so he's just saying that to emphasize the fact that he's denying the fact that he knows anything about Jesus. Well, it turns out there's two different Greek words there that mean two totally different things, which is kind of interesting when you read it. The first Greek word that's translated know, it tends to denote theoretical knowledge. In other words, I can read this Bible, And I can tell you what this Bible means, and I can give you all the theoreticals. I can give you all the academics. It's all right there. That's the theory. That's the theory of Christianity right here. That's what the word know means. But the word that's translated understand tends to describe practical knowledge. So that's living it. And I kind of put together an analogy, and this was in honor of Neph, because I know he builds things. That, uh, you know, if you're a do-it-yourselfer, you can open up a book or you can see a YouTube video and it'll tell you how to make cabinets. Yeah, you know, you've got to have X amount of wood and you've got to cut it just this way and you've got to have six penny nails and you've got to have this kind of varnish and you can do all of that. That's the theory. But for those of us who don't have a knack of building things and start doing that, the chance of success is pretty low especially the first time around. But now, translate it over to somebody who makes cabinets for a living. Okay? That person knows how to make cabinets because he's done it for his entire working career. So he knows that when you make a corner, you need to bevel a little bit of edge so they fit. Things that you don't read in the theory. He knows that if you use six penny nails, it's going to crack the wood. You don't want to use that. You want to use four penny nails. He knows all of these details because he's done it. He's made the mistakes along the way, so when he gets to this point, he doesn't make those same mistakes. That's the practicality of it. So what Peter was telling them was that I know nothing of the theory, nor have I ever lived it. That's what he was saying. And when you realize that, that's more than just saying no. That's getting into the whole idea of I don't want to have anything to do with this. Not now, not then, or ever. Which is a lot more than just saying, I didn't do it. So now we begin to understand the depth of Peter's denial. And he's sitting here and he's going, no, 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 no. And now he moves. Peter goes, he goes out into the entryway. But you know, a change in location really doesn't change his heart. And you know, that's something we can keep in mind too. When we find ourselves in bad situations and we work really hard to change the situation, but we don't change anything on our side, what does it gain us? It doesn't gain us a whole lot. When we change situations, we need to change hearts. Or we can change hearts and not change situations. It's important for us to look at that. Verse 69 and 70, When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of him." again he denied it no not me one of them you know it's interesting that the servant girl in the in the priest's house said one of them kind of implies that the priest at least the household had some inkling of what the Jesus movement was all about because they you know she was putting this together and and, and she probably knew something about that and you know this word translated deny it has the connotation of a extended denial And one of the commentaries that I was reading about this said, the denial is probably along the lines of going postal, okay? Or maybe not going postal, but maybe going off. You know, for us guys who are married, you know, when your wife goes off on you for being something stupid, that's probably about the idea of what what he meant by going off on the girl. I mean, he went off on her because... No, you know, stay away from me. Get away from me. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I, didn't, I told you once. I told you twice. I don't have anything to do with this. You know, get out of my life. You can just visualize Peter doing that in his own unsubtle, tactless way, okay? And a little while later, those people standing around, because apparently there was a group in him here, said, surely you're one of them, because you're a Galilean. And he began to call down curses, and he swore on them. He says, I do not know this man you're talking about. You know, this accusation is the boldest, and Peter's denial is the strongest. Because they look at him and they say, hey, you're from Galilee. You know, we we know you're from Galilee, because you don't look like those of us Jews that are down here from Jerusalem. You've got that accent, you know, we can tell. And he goes, no, no. He says, you're confused. I'm not. And he began to curse. And the word for curse and swear, the word for swear... Is the same Greek word that we get the word anathema from. So it gets you the idea of the depth of his protestations. I mean, he takes it one step farther. He's not simply being profane, but he's actually swearing, probably by God's name. So he's standing here. He's swearing. He's cursing. He's telling his people with intensity that I didn't have anything to do with this. And you look at the word anathema, if you want to get a picture of this in your mind, something or someone who is intensely disliked or even loathed. Now, I'm not going to go there, modern American politics, but you can find somebody, I'm sure, out there that you loathe, okay? If not in politics, in Hollywood. Okay, take that concept and put it in Peter's mind because that's what Peter was saying to these people that were around denunciation of something that's accursed, a vigorous denunciation. You begin to see the depth of what Peter was protesting and how he was protesting. And at that moment, the cock crew. You know, some people look at that and they make up stories. I don't say they make up stories, but they say, well, you know, in the Mishnah it tells us that There's no chickens in Jerusalem, because chickens scratch up, uh, carry in and unclean things. Therefore, this couldn't be an actual rooster. That it actually has to relate to the fact that the Romans had a reveille call, if you will, at a certain time of the morning, and it was also mimicked by a uh, shofar in the temple. But that's probably not what the actual, the the plain meaning of this herm is. Uh, This was the priest's house, he probably lived on the edge of the city at that time. So if you don't want chickens in Jerusalem, you can have chickens outside of Jerusalem. But they, you can hear over a distance. So the cock crowed. And then Peter remembered the words that Jesus spoke to him. And he broke down and wept. Now this word, break down, <coughs> excuse me. The word break down here means he threw himself on the ground and He cried. And if you think about back when the Magi came to see the young Jesus, when you, hear, when you read that passage, that's what they did. They threw themselves down. When they, when they prostrated themselves before Christ, they threw themselves down. Now Jesus has a Peter that he can work with. So what does that mean for us? That means that our brokenness, Jesus has a person that he can work with, and he can work through. Now we bring out several lessons through here. The disciples were warned against the kind of sinfulness that we today are most guilty of. That's the sins of weakness and omission. Not sins of commission, but things that we don't do. The disciples professed their allegiance to Jesus Easily in comfortable surroundings. We can sit in our living rooms, put our feet up, say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. But it gets a little difficult when we're walking the streets. It gets a little more difficult when we're asked to do something that we're not comfortable doing. Okay? Maybe you have an opportunity. Maybe you have an opportunity to talk to somebody that knows nothing about Christ. A little uncomfortable. They don't know the same language. Do you blow it off? Or do you take that opportunity and allow the Spirit to use you? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The key here is the proximity to Christ because none of us are as strong a Christians as we might envision ourselves to be. You know, I've asked you to put yourself as Peter's shadow, but put yourself as Peter. How strong do you think you are Are you really that strong? Ask yourself. The key here is proximity. The less likely that we're distracted, the more likely we'll be aligned with Christ. And that's where we want to be, aligned with Christ. Peter emphatically denied the theory and practice of being a follower of Christ. But you know what we have to ask ourselves Do we deny the knowledge of Christ by not spending a lot of time studying His Word? Do we deny the knowledge by not knowing this book like we should? You know, we sit here in in adult classes and we talk back and forth and back and forth. And and Ellis made a wonderful point this morning. He says, we can think about a lot of things. He says, but what we want to know is what's in this Word. What we want to know is here. Because when we're called to account, when we're called to answer, it's not going to be what we think. It's not going to be what we believe. It's going to be what the Word says. That's where we're going to be judged. How about do we deny the practice of being a Christian by not expressing love in our everyday life? Now, that's a handful. We could talk for a week about that. I mean, we're told that Christ is love, and that's what we're supposed to be reflecting when He lives in us. So what do we do? How do we do that? Do we see a need? Do we take care of it? Do we ignore it? Do we pray for people? Do we pray for people that don't ask for prayers? Do we pray for people that do ask for prayers? What can we do? All of us have something that we can do. It takes a little imagination to figure out what that is. Yeah? Think about it. Because that is living the practicality of being a Christian. And if we don't do that, then we're denying the practice. Just like Peter did. He was denying the practice. But you know, up to this point, it's kind of a dark story, huh? See a lot of frowns out there? (laughs) But, you know, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2, and I'll wrap up here in a couple minutes. He said, here is a trustworthy saying. Paul is talking to Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 11 through 13, 2 Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. But if we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. What are we being faithless? when we sin that's being faithless but he doesn't abandon us and that's of great comfort to those of us who understand that because he doesn't leave us twirling out here in the wind at any time that as long as we don't abandon him he will not abandon us after he had boasted of his fidelity Peter fervently denied the Lord three times fervently denied emphatically denied no, I want to have anything to do with Jesus. It seemed that Peter had burned all of his bridges. Now, look at it from the other side. If Jesus was just a normal human being and he was treated like that by one of his, quote, friends, unquote, I mean, that's it, dude. You're out of here. Gone. Bye. I ain't going to fool with you anymore. But that's not true either. Peter was a former failure. But with Jesus, failure is not an end. And you know, that's comforting too. Because how many times do we get up and fall down flat on our faces? How many times do we get up and say, and I can use myself for an example, I can do that. (laughs) It's like, no, you can't do that. If it's going to be worth anything, Jesus is going to do it through you. You are not going to do it. And we go on and on and on. But he doesn't abandon us. He lives in us. He gives us strength. And if we stay in proximity with him, he does the action, and we're there for him. Acts 4.13, final scripture. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed, and they began to recognize them as being with Jesus. See, that's the rest of the story. Peter, at the time of his denial, was a total failure. He didn't understand Christ, he didn't know what it was all about. He didn't know why he had just spent three and a half years with Jesus learning these things. Although he was the only one to accept Jesus as the Messiah when he asked for him and said, he didn't understand. He said, you're the Messiah, but in his mind, the Messiah was a physical person coming back to save the country of Israel. But God took that and he transformed that and he filled him with his spirit. So down the road, he was. this was what was said about him that even others could see Peter. By others, we're talking about people not in the church. They could see Peter, and they could see that he was with Jesus. That's where we need to be. That's where we need to be. We need to be filled with that spirit so that when people look at us, they can look at us and see us and recognize the fact that he is filled with Jesus.